welcome to the first video interview for the Mintcast, the Mint Press News Podcast. I'm Alan McLeod, and joining Whitney Webb and myself today is Lisa Pease. Lisa is a researcher, former UN expert witness, and the author of the recently released book, A Lie Too Big to Fail, a work some are hailing as the magnum opus of the Robert F. Kennedy assassination research. The book is a result of 25 years of research and has drawn praise from both the Washington Post and members of Robert uh, Kennedy's family, such as his son, RFK Jr. Her over 500-page work reads more like a thriller than a research project and claims that the convicted assassin, Sirhan Bishara Sirhan, did not kill Robert F. Kennedy and instead was the victim of a conspiracy, including several elements of the U.S. government. Welcome to the program, Lisa. Thank you so much for having me. I'm a big fan of Mint Press News. <laughs> well, it's our pleasure. Uh, so before we jump into your research and book, Lisa, um, I'd like to put, place your work in context a little bit. Um, um, because for a lot of, a long time, people um, that have talked about, you know, the Kennedy assassinations, including the Robert Kennedy assassination, they've been accused of being on the political fringe or conspiracy mm. theorists and things <laughs> like that, right? I'm sure you have heard this before. <laughs> So yeah. um, I, I think it's important to point out to listeners and viewers that earlier this year in January, there was a group of 60 notable, uh, notable public figures, academics, authors, and investigators, as well as several members of the families of Malcolm X, Martin Luther King Jr., and Robert Kennedy, who were calling for um, the reinvestigation of this assassination, um, as well as um, other prominent um, assassinations of the 1960s. And we also know, for example, that Martin Luther King Jr.'s own family in 1999, they won a U.S. court case. Um, that showed that Martin Luther King Jr. had been killed as part of a conspiracy that involved, um, you know, the U.S. government, among other actors. So in, in Robert Kennedy's case specifically, you know, we have his son, um, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. He visited, uh, you know, the alleged assassin Sirhan Sirhan in jail and upon meeting him, you know, gave him a hug and called him a sweet guy afterwards. And then publicly stated that he felt that Sirhan Sirhan was not responsible. So I think this context makes it really important to revisit this assassination, um, as you do, um, since it's been one of the least covered assassinations of this era. So in your book, Lisa, you know, you provide extensive and I would really say um, conclusive evidence that the official narrative of the RFK assassination, which, you know, the official narrative is that Sirhan Sirhan, um, a Christian Palestinian refugee from Jerusalem, was a lone wolf killer who killed Robert F. Kennedy Jr. because of his uh, of Kennedy's alleged support or his support for Israel. Um, and so this story is so full of holes um, that it's, you know, <laughs> based on the available evidence, it really is a lie, to be, uh, a lie to big to fail, as you say in your book. So for those listeners who may know little or next to nothing about this assassination, um, what would you say are the clearest points of evidence proving that there is no way that this was a lone wolf attack and that Sirhan Sirhan did not fire any of the shots that killed Bobby Kennedy? Right, right. <laughs> uh, thank you for the introduction. That was a really big question. And... Um, <laughs> That's all right. Uh, I, I just want to comment that I was the one who put Sirhan, I mean, uh, put Robert Kennedy Jr. in touch with Sirhan's lawyer so he could speak to Sirhan. Oh, wow. I was literally, like, sitting next wow. to him, like, do you want to talk to Sirhan? He's like, yes. And I'm like, well, let me put you in touch with Lori. Lori Dusick is his current attorney, along with William Pepper. And uh, so they made it happen. And then I, you know, I called him afterwards. I'm like, well, what'd you think? And, and and he told me that that he thought he was a sweet man, and and I put that in my book. So um, the entry point uh, before I get to the Robert Kennedy case, and I will. Uh, but the entry point of the family of Robert Kennedy Jr. into this case is huge because 
for decades, decades, a lot of us have been kind of toiling, uh, unknown, unappreciated, unnoticed by the mainstream media. So it's really incredible that the family is now back in our efforts to get to the bottom of what happened in the assassination of Robert F. Kennedy. So here's the official story. The official story is after his victory speech, having just won the California primary on June 4th, um, shortly after midnight on June 5th, uh, Robert Kennedy finishes his speech, walks into this kitchen pantry area, a narrow place that nonetheless held at least 77 people by the LAPD's count, and Sirhan stepped out, pulled out a gun, started firing at Kennedy. Kennedy falls down dead. Five other people, uh, he doesn't fall down dead. He falls down wounded and he dies within the next 26 hours. Um, members of the, I'm sorry, of his party were also uh, shot and wounded in the pantry. Five other people had bullets removed from them. Kennedy himself was shot four times. And then there were bullet holes in the ceiling. So kind of a problem already. Even by the LAPD's count, there were at least 12 bullet points of entry um, that had to be explained by eight bullets. So that's a little bit of a problem. So what the LAPD did, of course, is said, well, a bullet went into and out of Kennedy's clothing and then lodged in somebody else, and lodged in Paul Schrade's head in that particular case. <laughs> and uh, another a very improbable scenario. So there's always been too many bullets. And adding to that was the fact that the FBI found bullet holes in the door frames of the pantry, and they photographed and labeled them as such. I even found a video um, that showed the, because uh, a lot of people who have seen pictures of the pantry, it's not obvious. It looks like the holes are in the wall, but the holes were behind um, three quarter of an inch thick pine wood frame, and so they couldn't have been made by people jabbing, you know, pencils in because the holes still in the paneling are tiny, but the holes in the wall are bigger. So clearly, either a bullet plowed into it, you know, digging a bigger hole as it expanded. Or, of course, somebody dug bullets out of the wall, explaining why there are bigger holes behind the cover piece of wood that had only a tiny bullet hole in it. So that's important, too. So clearly too many bullets. Um, now, here's the other thing. There are witnesses who saw Sirhan at the time of the shooting, and I paid special attention to the witnesses who saw both Kennedy and Sirhan. Because there's been a lot of discrepancies on the distance. Were they an inch away? Were they several feet away from each other? Because people put Sirhan in front of Kennedy, but Kennedy was shot from behind. So is it possible Sirhan lunged in? Is it possible that Robert Kennedy turned his head at the last minute? And the answer is no, because when you look at the witnesses who saw them both at the same time, at the moment of the shooting, they say Robert Kennedy was facing Sirhan, Sirhan was facing Robert Kennedy, and Sirhan's gun muzzle was about three feet away, whereas the autopsy makes it clear that Kennedy was shot from not more than a, you know, they say up to three inches, but the coroner even restated this year, he's certain it was not more than an inch and a half from behind Kennedy's right ear. So again, somebody is right behind Kennedy shooting as Sirhan is shooting. And in my book, in the preface, I talk about this is a magic trick. This was literally staged like a magic trick. Sir Hannes is a distractor. He pulls out a gun and fires. If you're in a room and somebody pulls out a gun and fires, your eye is going not to even the shooters. Your eye is going to the muzzle because that's self-protection. You want to make sure you don't get hit. And that's exactly what happened. And Rayford Johnson even says this to the police. He goes, you know, once I saw the gun, I didn't look around. If there were other shooters, I wouldn't have seen them. I didn't look around. 
and uh, and that's an issue. But there were people who weren't directly, who weren't seeing Sirhan, who did see other guns, and that's something I talk about in my book as well. Yeah, the official story that was told to the press does not match what's in the police's own files. Wow. So that's a lot of information, but I suppose my first question would be just based on the evidence you described, how would you categorize what actually happened the night RFK was shot then? Who do you think was responsible? Well, there was a guard who was holding Kennedy at the moment of the shooting. He literally had his elbow in his hand. That guard was in a perfect position to have shot him under the arm with his own body covering the shot. Three of the shots in Kennedy came from under his right armpit, and one shot came right behind the ear. The shot behind the ear was actually a frangible or exploding bullet. None of the other bullets in the pantry anywhere exploded. So that that's evidence that perhaps a different gunman was right at Kennedy's head. And again, if the guard knew, you know, who the shooter was, his big, bulky, six-foot-two body could have provided cover for a shooter. In my book, I talk about a couple of witnesses who saw a man who appeared to be in a white busboy outfit who looked a lot like Sirhan get right up to Kennedy's head and do something that made one of the witnesses, um, Freddie Plimpton, who is the wife of George Plimpton, she's like, I really had the impression that he fired, but she's like, I don't know why I didn't see a gun in his hand. And I talk about how there are various kinds of concealed weapons at the CIA Museum in Washington. You can see all kinds of guns. There's guns you know, hidden in a cigarette uh, container, guns in a lipstick container, guns that are so small they can literally be hidden in a hand. So it appears that the man used some sort of a concealed gun to, to hit Kennedy in the head. And then here's the other problem, because... There are witnesses that I quote in my book and I've quoted in my talks. In fact, I have a talk on C-SPAN uh, that's coming out Saturday the um, 27th, <laughs> uh, and it'll be online afterwards. I gave a talk at Olney College in Illinois that was filmed by C-SPAN that will air and will be available online, um, where I, I named some of the witnesses who saw a flame coming out of Sirhan's gun. When you fire a bullet, you don't see anything visible coming out of the gun. But when you fire a blank... And you can do that from a regular gun. You don't need a cap gun to fire blanks. But you, they're called slugless cartridges. When you fire that, it's paper and it burns as it comes out of the muzzle. And so it creates a vis- visible flame. Hollywood loves these for two reasons. One, obviously, no one's going to get shot. But two, there's a visible action coming out of the gun. So it looks, the audience can see the gunfire. Because in a real gunfight, you wouldn't be able to see the gunfire. You'd see the gun, but you wouldn't see, you know any light coming out of the gun, so to speak. Um, So there's that and the fact that, and again, I go into this in great detail in my book, more than I'll have time here, but it's very clear that the police knew there was a problem with Sirhan's bullets and literally switched the bullets the night after the autopsy. So June 6th is is when Kelly dies early in the morning. The the autopsy happens, you know, before 9 a.m. on June 6th. When Dwayne Wolfer, LAPD criminalist, comes in and he gets the bullet, he knows right away there's a problem. Um, he goes into the, he quits work at like 4 p.m. that day. There's a five-hour gap. He goes back to the lab at 9 p.m. and works till 1 a.m. the next morning. And at that point, a new photo micrograph, a 
bullet comparison is made. This bullet comparison photo is hidden, and the LAPD even talks about it in their own records, saying discerning buffs will notice there's a problem with this, but we're going to keep it secret because we might need it for some later legal action. And so sure enough, in 1975, there's a legal action, and the evidence is reexamined. And <clears throat> the investigators who are asked to look at just the bullets decide that the bullets aren't even what the LAPD said because they tried to say it's the Kennedy neck bullet and a victim bullet, I mean, and, uh, and a test bullet from Sirhan's gun. And they are able to match up the bullets that they are provided, and they say, oh, that's the Kennedy bullet, but it's not a test bullet. It's another victim bullet. So all they could prove was that two bullets came from the same gun and that, you know, they couldn't prove it came from Sir Ann's gun, amazingly enough. But here's the problem. The police, in their records, when a bullet is taken into evidence, it's marked with some sort of a mark by whoever receives the bullet as part of the chain of possession, and it goes into the police evidence log. And when you compare those markings to the markings that the 1975 panel laboriously notated, they looked at all the bullets on the markings because they wanted to make sure they didn't mix up the bullets. They had to be able to identify you know, which one they're holding. The markings that the panel had didn't match the markings that the LAPD put. So, for example, the Kennedy neck bullet, which was not a fatal bullet, but was, you know, one of the more intact bullets recovered, is marked TM31 by Thomas Noguchi. And and so people understand a 22 bullet, which is what Sirhan was firing and what, you know, was found in the pantry, the, the end of a bullet is a little smaller than the end of a pencil. So to put TM31 on that, you can imagine how small that is, and you can imagine it probably filled the whole surface. So how then, in 1975, does the marking change to DWTN without a 31? It's not like, you know, Thomas Noguchi left room for Dwayne Wolfer to put his own marking on it above or to the left of his mark marking. So we know the bullets were switched, and because the bullets match a photo that was taken on June 6th, we know the bullets were switched on June 6th. So the police knew immediately there was a serious problem and went about dumbing up the evidence. Uh, they had already lost their hands gun. It had already gone to the grand jury, and so they could not refire Sirhan's gun to make more bullets, you know, to make the match, because that's probably what they would have done if they could, but that gun was out of reach. So really they had to use a different gun. And uh, in the court transcript, Dwayne Wolfer talks about finding a gun with a very close serial number to Sirhan's. And in the trial transcript, the gun that's in evidence has a very close serial number to Sirhan's, but it's not the Sirhan gun. And his lawyers talk about that after the fact. So Sirhan was literally convicted with a gun that wasn't that even was his his. own gun. That's so, and my wow. book is the first to bring that to the surface. And in fact, Munir Sirhan, who is the brother of Sirhan Sirhan, told me that Sirhan was reading the book in jail. And when he got to that, he's like, oh my gosh, do my lawyers know this? This is really significant. Right. You know, he understands right away how big this is. So that... The case was, he was never given proper defense until almost, you know, 40 years later. Lawrence Teeter might have been the first honest lawyer that Sirhan ever had who really tried to help him. And now William Pepper and Laurie Dusick. And by now, all his, like, legal 
you know, appeals have expired. You know, all the normal processes can go through. So there's something terribly wrong with our legal system. If you find evidence of somebody's innocence, it shouldn't matter if all their legal, you know, appeals have expired. There needs to be a way because we have, in my mind, an innocent man now on, you know, he's, he's on death row except that the death sentence was uh, commuted uh, mm. in the 70s, uh don't want to go into that. But anyway, Sir Ann's not going to be killed in jail, but he's probably going to die in jail unless we get him out. And so at this point, I'm relying on public opinion. I even set up a petition. If you go to change.org and you search free Sir Ann, you can find that petition and sign it because the evidence is so strong that he didn't kill anybody. He didn't wound anybody. And, of course, now the question is, well, what's he doing there? He's firing a gun in the middle of the crowded pantry. Isn't he part of the plot? And that gets into the the bigger question of what was his mental state at the time. Sure. And I have a whole chapter where I argue strongly mm. that man was in a hypnotic trance, that he did not even know what he was part of, that he, at a, at a touch, was sent in this thing called range mode where he thought he was back at a target range and he pulled out his gun and was firing at targets. And in my book, I explain how people can have a hallucination under hypnosis because I witnessed this personally. I went to as many hypnosis shows as I could for a period of time while I was working on the book because I really wanted to see what, you know, what worked, what didn't, how you could explain it or not. And, and I saw a woman that I talked to 20 minutes. For 20 minutes, I had a very normal conversation with her, normal, nice, intelligent, just regular person. She goes up on stage and is hypnotized to believe she won a $25,000 check. Or thirty-five thousand. I don't remember what the exact amount was, but um, so of course during the show she jumps around and is all excited and you know as you expect. And then the hypnotist supposedly unhypnotizes them all, and you know the show ends. I talk to the hypnotist. I ask him, "Can you program somebody to you know do something against their will?" He doesn't answer and leaves the area. <laughs> and then uh, um, I I saw this woman still wandering. <laughs> Yes, exactly. It was a little too close to home. And so I saw this woman, after the crowd had cleared, she was still wandering around looking distressed. And so I went up to her because I thought maybe she'd lost her family or something. And she's like, well, I have to give this back. I'm like, what are you talking about? And she said, and she's holding play money. It was like Monopoly money, you know, like a $100 Monopoly bill or something. And and I said, well, you don't have to give that back. That's play money. And she said, no, that's a $25,000 check. And that was the first time I really understood that under hypnosis, your whole reality is altered. She honestly completely believed that was a check. And that just freaked me out. It's like, wow, you can be made to be in an entirely different world. And so that was the first time I really started to understand how Sirhan had been used and that he really didn't know what he was part of. And, yeah, it's just an incredible story. Well, well, going back then to, you know, Sirhan's level of responsibility and who was really responsible, um, you know, and who was really responsible for using Sirhan in this way, I think it's um, important to go back to some of the things you touched on earlier. For example, the security guard in your book, you talk about uh, his name was Thane Caesar, correct? Um, he was apparently contracted by Ace Security, I believe you said in the book, and that they had some um, interesting connections there, uh, potentially to U.S. intelligence, and that there was also U.S. intelligence connections to people in the LAPD investigation that were directly involved, um, yes. and, and I guess yes, you could say the cover-up and things like that. Would you mind talking about those sort of connections for a little bit? Um, because I think sure. that sort of shows who may have been pulling the strings here. Absolutely, absolutely. 
in in my book, and this has been in the Washington Post article, I accuse Robert Mayhew of being one of the masterminds of the plot. And I do that on the basis of a lot of evidence, um, even more than it's in my book. But I, you know, I, I tried to keep it under five, you know, it's like a 500-page book. I didn't want it to be a 750-page book because there's even more. Uh, <laughs> but Robert Mayhew was the man that the CIA had chosen to run their Castro assassination plots. And when I first started learning about him, I thought that was so odd because Robert Mayhew was portrayed as a businessman who worked for the Howard Hughes organization and was kind of the alter ego of Howard Hughes because Hughes at that time had gone into seclusion and wasn't Mm -hmm. talking to the media or the press. And so Robert Mayhew was kind of the visible face of Hughes to the world. And when somebody wanted something, they would go to Robert Mayhew during the time that Mayhew was in control. So I'm like, how do you get from that to assassination plots? And so I had to look further back to Robert Mayhew's history, and there was a a professor at Columbia University, Jesus Galindez, who had been killed in a very uh, odd manner, and it disappeared because he was criticizing Trujillo, you know, in the Dominican Republic, and it looked like an associate of Mayhew's had been involved in setting that up. Uh, When he worked for Hughes, um, a man died who accidentally cleaning his gun, apparently, who was uh, going out with one of Hughes' girlfriends after Mayhew had directly threatened him. And so it's like, you know, was that just a coincidence? The guy just coincidentally died after cleaning his gun after Mayhew had threatened you better back off. And Hughes just assumed that Mayhew had set it up. He's like, wow, you live up to your reputation. And in his own book, Mayhew's like, oh, he's terrified. I didn't want people to think I'd actually killed him. But, of course, he would say that if you had actually killed him. So, uh, you know, it seems that Mayhew has a much darker past that we have only scratched the surface of. Now, I was told years ago that Thane Caesar had worked for Mayhew prior to the assassination through Bel Air Security, which is a security for an area that's even richer than Beverly Hills, a quiet enclave. And, of course, the reason for Bel Air Security's existence was Howard Hughes living in in that area at that time. And Mayhew is a co-owner of that firm. So it's very possible there had been a prior connection. Um, Thane Caesar, I looked into public databases. There are many such things on the Internet. And I've been doing this several times over the years because different people show up and different information shows up at different times. And I went to several of the most credible databases. And because I was shocked, it was originally on LinkedIn, I think I saw something on LinkedIn that said Thane Caesar was a CI contract agent, and I just kind of laughed that off, because I just assumed somebody set up a fake Thane Caesar account and put that information in there, you know, to suck in conspiracy theories, so I completely dismissed it. But in my searches of other databases, and I'm not going to name them, I found that, in fact, he was a CIA contract agent. That was his employer. Huh. This is sole employer for many years. And you had to go many, many years before the, you know, before the assassination, before another employer was listed. I'm like, well, that's interesting. And again, this doesn't mean he was a CIA contract agent at the time of the assassination, because there's a gap in the record. He could have been, but he was definitely a CIA contract agent after the assassination. Now, the CIA has essentially confirmed this because a lawyer in San Francisco FOIA'd his records in regards to CIA activities, and the CIA denied the request on operational grounds, meaning he might still be operational Mm -hmm. for them. 
Uh, I understand he lives in the Philippines, and for years we had no extradition treaty with the Philippines. Um, you know, so I think he's safely out of reach of the law. Um, but this is all very incredible. If a man who later became a CIA agent was holding Kennedy at the moment of the shooting, that itself is incredible. And if he even fired some shots, as he may have. And, again, there's no way I can explain the whole case. That's why I wrote a 500-page book. I can't explain it in a podcast or an interview and, right. you know, even with a lot of time. But I will touch on, you mentioned that some of the LAPD members were um, intelligence, and that's true, and especially... They had different angles, and they had a conspiracy group. Well, the two guys who basically ran the conspiracy part of the investigation had direct links to the CIA. Manny Pena was one of them, and Hank Hernandez was another. Hank Hernandez was responsible for all the polygraph tests. So anybody who had evidence of conspiracy, Hank Hernandez told them, well, this shows you're lying, and he battered them into submission verbally, and they all end up backing down some more quickly than others. I, I quote an extensive portion of his interview with Sandy Serrano. Um, she She's a woman who appeared to have seen two additional team members of the assassination plot fleeing out the back of the hotel after the assassination. And her interview and the way he interviews her can only be described as psychological torture. And, you know, he had first taken her to dinner and got her yeah. a big steak and wine, and so there she is, a little boozy and woozy, and it's 10 at night, you know, when he's interviewing her, and she had been promised that her aunt could be in the room with her, and then her aunt gets shut out of the room. And it became clear to Sandy, you know, about an hour in, that she was literally not going to be allowed to leave that room until she changed. Yeah, that that whole transcript was in your in your book, and it just seemed so aggressive. I was reading it and was just really taken back, (sighs) like, um, you know, thinking of, of, you know, if I were in that situation, God, it would have been really stressful to have some big cop. You know, basically telling you like everything you saw was wrong and, and, you know, doing all that stuff, you know, wine and dine you before and then play good cop, bad cop all at the same time, which is really manipulative, dirty stuff. I think it's also worth adding that when Serrano uh, saw those people leaving uh, the Ambassador Hotel, that those people had been bragging that they had shot Robert Kennedy, which I think right. is uh, key to point right. out too. And key to point out, too, is that one of them was a woman in a polka dot dress, and witnesses had seen, there were a number of witnesses who saw this girl in a polka dot dress with Sirhan and another man in a gold top, a gold shirt, a gold sweater, Um, either the two, some combination of those two or those three for hours that night, there were people, and because I, I actually like wrote down the, the approximate times, and you could kind of track their progress through the hotel. It appears that the girl in the polka dot dress was Sirhan's handler on site. That it was her job to get him to the right place and in position. And here's the thing: no one knew if Sirhan, I mean, if um, Robert Kennedy was going to go to the the press room first. Or second. Everybody knew he was going to go to the press room eventually, but he might have gone uh, because he did that at every stop. But there was a small chance he might just go downstairs, talk to the over the overflow crowd, and then continue out and go to a, a party downtown. Um, and so it appears, and again, I go into this in my book, it appears there were two teams, one upstairs and one downstairs. And the girl in the polka dot dress takes her hand backstage to a man in a polka dot tie uh, who points her to a door that is guarded, you know, where a girl in a polka dot scarf is standing. And I began to think, wait a minute, maybe the polka dot isn't some sort of hypnotic trigger. Maybe it's a a signal to other conspirators because, frankly, 
polka dots, especially in the 50s, were much more casual attire, and this was a formal event. And so, you know, something in polka dots would have stood out as being a little different. And people did comment that her dress didn't seem appropriate for the occasion. That's why people noticed her. And and Sirhan was in jeans, and other people were in, you know, like suits and ties. And so these people really stood out as not fitting in, and that's why so many people noticed them. But it's the girl then who takes Sirhan into the pantry they're on the tray stacker. Somebody sees her standing behind Saran on the tray stacker. The tray stacker is positioned in a spot kind of, I don't know how to describe it, you know, without a picture, but it was positioned in a spot where they would have an excellent view because it was a little bit elevated so they could see above the heads of the crowd to when Kennedy walked in. <clears throat> and one of Sirhan's last memories before his memory just mysteriously disappeared, which is very common under hypnosis, by the way, that you have no memory of your time under hypnosis. One of his last memories was of the girl walking him kind of to the center, or, or the girl looking up to her right as she's holding him and talking to him. And up to her right would have been the steam table. And again, I have four really credible witnesses who saw Shooter on a steam table. There's a fifth witness I found about after my book. And it's funny, there's a picture in, in the San Antonio paper in, you know, later years where it says the, the shooter stood here on the table. Sir had never fired standing on the table, never. Because again, we have the witnesses who saw them both. And they saw Sirhan standing on the floor, short, directly in front of Kennedy, not elevated in any manner. So people who saw somebody on the table who looked like Sirhan, it was still not Sirhan. And just to show that there really were lookalikes in the room, at the grand jury hearing before the trial, one of the witnesses described a totally different man, Michael Wayne, but he thought it was Sirhan, and he's like, this guy entered, he had a rolled-up poster, it looked like he was casing the room, he looked right and left as he entered, and this was not only a totally different person, but a highly suspicious totally different person who was literally captured running out of the pantry afterwards in a manner so suspicious that people thought he had a gun or he was running away and they tackled him he was even handcuffed and there's pictures of him handcuffed that you can now find on the internet i tried to get the rights to that photo to use in my book but sadly by then the Mm. photographer his memory seemed to be going and he didn't know what i was talking about i'm like oh i really wanted people to see that so uh Yeah, but you can find it on the internet. Um, just Google Michael Wayne. And again, Michael Wayne's whole reason for being there is suspicious. I mean, he was a Nazi sympathizer. So what does he want an autograph from Robert Kennedy for? You know, why is he hanging out at the Robert huh. Kennedy volunteer office? That's not like a, a social spot for most Nazis, you know? <laughs> like, sure. you know. Very interesting character, and, and there are other interesting characters. I I tried to identify, you know, what I call the team. I mean, there were clearly more than one other. It wasn't just another shooter. There was a whole team making sure that because Michael Wayne's one of his jobs seemed to be to get press badges because you couldn't get into the pantry if you didn't have some sort of a press pass. And so he was collecting them from everybody, as was the girl in the polka dot dress. And when I say the girl, there was very specific descriptions of a girl with a turned up nose, all right, a ski slope, pug, Bob Hope nose, you know, very and busty. Everybody talked about she had a great figure, and yet she wasn't that 
attractive in her face. So she was not beautiful, but she had a beautiful figure, and she had a very distinctive turned-up nose. And so when I say the girl in the polka dot dress, I'm talking about that girl because there was at least one other girl in polka dot dress who was younger, had a straight nose, no chest, <laughs> looked to be 17 or 18, who was also seen with a Sirhan lookalike at certain spots in the hotel. And, you know, there are other books that talk about other girls who could have been the girl, but if they don't have a turned-up nose and they don't have a beautiful figure, it's probably not her. Okay, so okay. anyway, uh, <laughs> go ahead. I, I, I lost my train there. No, no, it's sure. fine. I think now uh, we were going to get into, uh, you know, the the media narrative about this. Uh, Alan, would you like to start uh, going, going? Yeah, right sure. So, in A Lie Too Big to Fail, and we're talking to Lisa P., uh, Lisa P.'s author of A Lie Too Big to Fail, you claim that the information on the Robert F. Kennedy assassination was essentially covered up by the media, and especially media outlets that were close to the U.S. government at the time. Uh, could you elaborate uh, on that for us? Yes, and to me, this is the biggest untold story, or, or little told story of our time. It's not entirely untold. In 1970. I think it was, uh, Carl Bernstein of the famous Woodward and Bernstein Watergate reporting team, uh, Carl Bernstein by himself, uh, wrote this amazing article in Rolling Stone uh, called The CIA and the Media that just completely opened my eyes. And he talked about how the CIA had relationships with ABC, NBC, CBS, New York Times, Washington Post, LA Times, Copley News Service, Associated Press, literally every major media outlet in America, the CIA had deep, serious, and high-level, in a lot of cases, contacts. They also had what they called the stringers, the freelancers. And the way the CIA, it's illegal for them to propagandize Americans. That's actually illegal. Well, but not anymore. It was As done. of 2013, <laughs> it's, uh, it's legal now. <laughs> yeah, isn't that uh, crazy? Exactly, exactly. Actually, I think it, uh, that Reagan actually opened loose in that a little bit too. Um, yeah, so, but the, the extent of the media's cooperation with the government is astonishing. So anyway, in 75, I mentioned that 1975 panel. Well, before that, William Harper, a local criminalist from Pasadena who did not trust the LAPD criminalist Dwayne Wolfer, had uh, Bill Harper went and did his own investigation of the bullets and the evidence, and he concluded that you know there are all kinds of problems that there had to be at least two different shooters, and and he filed an affidavit to that effect that just set shockwaves through the L.A. you know criminal political scene, and a, a woman tried to stop. Uh, Dwayne Wolfer from being promoted, and then Dwayne Wolfer sued her for two million, but dropped the suit before it actually started uh, because he, he would have been the one looking bad. Um, anyway, so while this is going on, then the Washington Post sends Ron Kessler. Ron Kessler has written a number of books very friendly to the U.S. government, the FBI, the CIA. I mean, he's kind of a you know when I read his books, they were so obviously kiss up books. <laughs> I don't know any other, you know, polite way to say it. You know, they were so obviously not meant to be in-depth, honest reporting. They were meant to be propaganda for the government. That's how they read. And so I found it very interesting that it was Ron Kessler who, uh, you know, wrote an article for the Washington Post basically discrediting Harper's findings. And Harper was incensed because he misrepresented his findings. He didn't write about it accurately. He tried to get a rebuttal in the Washington Post, and the Washington Post 
when given equal time. You know, they said, I, I talk about that story, but, and it wasn't just the Washington Post. Now, here's the problem, too. The media only knows what the police and the, the county officials are telling them. It's not like the media goes and looks at the records. They weren't available. You know, the stuff I'm reporting wasn't available to anyone until 1988. All right, so when I found them in 1994, I pulled out the wrong drawer at the library, and I'm like, oh, my God, those are the LAPD's files on the Robert Kennedy case. And uh, and so I there were reels of microfilm, 22 reels or something. I remember throwing one in at random. They were unlabeled. There's no index. I didn't know what I was looking at. And the very first reel talked about Michael Wayne being apprehended. And I'm like, what? I never heard there was a second guy who was apprehended that night. And what else don't I know? And, and that started me down this what's now been a 25-year journey or so, you know, looking into the evidence. Where was I? <laughs> Oh, uh, so the media, anyway, so the media is not entirely to blame in the sense that they didn't have access to this. Now, even when the files became available, what news organization is going to give the reporter a year to look into the files? Because honestly, you can't find it um, without a lot of time. It's taken me decades, and even after 20 years, I was still finding new things that really changed my understanding of the case. So, um, since we've been speaking of media connections, um, I want to go back to the official media narrative that's sort of been built around Sirhan Sirhan and the official story of him being the Sloan Wolf Killer, because what um, several people in, in um, lo- several media outlets, particularly Israeli media, it's important to point out, um, but also in conservative media in the U.S., um, have characterized Sirhan Sirhan, they call him the first Palestinian terrorist, which I think is really significant here. Let's remember going back to what was mentioned in the beginning. Um, Sirhan Sirhan is a Palestinian Christian. He was born in Jerusalem. His family was violently evicted um, during the founding of the State of Israel in 1948, um, which, uh, you know, in Arabic is known as the Nakba. Um, he was forced to live in a house, you describe in your book, in really horrific conditions with a, a bunch of other families. I think 50 families, you said, in like this really squalid building that he didn't even have a bathroom. He saw people uh, like a grocery man, like blown up in front of him by uh, Israeli paramilitary groups and, and bombs. And he was like three years old. And like his mom would describe him going in like a catatonic state because of all the horrible stuff he had to witness. Uh, and you mentioned that later that 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 early life trauma may have been used against him at a later point um, by by the, this whole hypnosis business, which um, is is just really horrible. Um, but anyway, so the official story has used Sirhan's background as a Palestinian. Um, and so he officially, according to the official story, you know, killed Kennedy because Kennedy wanted to send fighter jets to Israel. And so this has also been used to sort of paint Robert Kennedy as an extreme um pro-Israel figure, but it's also important to point out that... Right, right, but it's also important to point out that Robert F. Kennedy uh, had a very nuanced support of Israel. He wanted, you know, equal rights for Palestinians, things like that. Um, And he also was uh, really... was really pushing under his brother's administration previously, uh, forcing to have the American Israel lobby register as a foreign agent, which was really strongly resisted mm-hmm. uh, at the time and actually was never uh, successful. Robert Kennedy was not evil and even uh, able to do that. And, he, and even to the point of today, you know, Israel's lobby uh, is still not forced to register as a foreign agent. So I think it's important uh, to point that out. So, um, yeah, which is incredible. So anyway, that narrative, right, of Sirhan Sirhan being oh. the so-called first 
No, I was going to say, and and to me, this is also strong evidence that the CI was involved because when the CI does a hit like this, they love to do these two first. They like to not right. only kill somebody but use it to further an agenda. With the John Kennedy assassination, the agenda, you know, was to further the the Cold War, you know, between the Soviets at a time where John Kennedy was reaching out to Khrushchev through a back channel through the Vatican, trying to, you know, right. find a way to end the nuclear arms race and make peace with each other. Khrushchev was overthrown in his country. Kennedy was overthrown in his. The forces of war are very strong. And, and so the double narrative is a key point of this. And what's kind of hilarious is that although they tried to paint Sirhan as a Palestinian terrorist, they were a little ahead of their time because there weren't really Palestinian terrorists at that, that time. So it didn't have the import, but they knew they could see the way the world was going, and they were trying to frame the narrative that way so that years later somebody would write a book saying Sirhan right. was... And, and so there's an author who either completely fell for the CIA's baloney narrative on that or is part of the CIA's baloney narrative on that. And I would leave it to readers to make up their mind about that author. Yeah, a forgotten terrorist. <laughs> and, and the thing is, Sirhan is not a terrorist. Again, as Bobby Kennedy said, he's a gentleman. He's, he, you know, his brother Munir talked about how he used to scoop up cockroaches because he didn't want to step on them and kill them and, and take them out of the house. He grew up with this terrible violence, and for some people that can make you violent, but for others it can make you incredibly compassionate. And in Suryan's case, he was very compassionate. And again, not just to other humans, but to insect life. And so the narrative doesn't fit if you know the real Sirhan. But it's very convenient for the media because here's the thing. Here's this guy arrested. He claims he has no memory of the shooting. And how do you explain that? It's like, well, then what are you doing there? And he literally couldn't explain it. And so it was his lawyers who kind of put this narrative in his head because they needed some narrative because they felt that he would be killed if he just said, I don't remember. They thought no jury in the world's going to believe that. You know, and it's possible at that time no jury would have, especially because they weren't explaining to them how hypnosis worked, even though his own lawyers did believe he had been hypnotized. They just argued it had been self-hypnosis. And here's the other thing. Robert Blair Kaiser, one of his defense team members, told me, Lisa, how do you get a guy off by arguing he was a member of a conspiracy? How do you save his life by arguing he's a member of a conspiracy? And that's why they wanted to take all the conspiratorial aspects out of it and just say, well, he was just this man who had been so traumatized in his youth that he wanted to react this way against Kennedy. The whole bombers narrative and Kennedy sending the bombing, um, they they couldn't line that up with the facts of Sirhan's life. Sirhan had kept you know, journals when he was in school, but these journals were, were peppered with these strange, repetitive phrases. And on one page in particular, it says, Kennedy must die, you know, RFK must die, RFK must die, RFK must die a hundred times. And on the same page, it also says, please pay to the order of, please pay to the order of, please pay to the order of, you know, right. three or four times. And it has all kinds of other weird ramblings on it. And there's several pages like that that have these weird, rep repetitive um, writings. One of them says, long live of Nasser, long live that Nasser, long live Nasser, the Egyptian president. Um, so how to make sense of those? Well, on the top of one of those pages, written upside down, as if somebody was sitting across the table from Sirhan and Sirhan's writing, but somebody's annotating it, you know, so it would come out upside down at the top of the page. And it says, this appears to be the right amount of electric preponderance. 
Now, I found that there was a hypnotist in L.A. named William Bryan who did hook people up to machines. He was hypnotize multiple people at once by hooking them up to machines. <laughs> and, you know, so didn't that same guy brag? That Sorry, didn't that same hypnotist brag to, like, prostitutes or something that he had hypnotized Sirkan Sirkan? I think you mentioned that. Yes, William Bryan had told some prostitutes, he was a frequent visitor to certain prostitutes in Las Vegas, um, he had bragged to them that he had hypnotized Sirhan. Now, the prostitutes assumed he meant, like, after Sirhan had been captured and arrested and while he was in jail. But there's no record that William Bryan ever visited Sirhan in jail or was part of that. And in my book, I actually ask why his defense team didn't choose William Bryan. He was the head of the American Hypnosis Society. He was very well respected among the legal uh, you know, authorities, and he was right here in L.A., and instead they flew in a guy from Northern California. And I thought that was so odd, and um, you know, I, I speculated openly, maybe it's because Sirhan might somehow have recognized Bryan, and maybe that's why they would want to keep them apart. I don't know. Uh, but uh, besides whoever hypnotized them, I, I do want to go back to that narrative for a second because it's been really damaging to Sirhan over the years. And, in fact, after 9-11, somebody saw him with a towel on his head, having just come from the shower, and assumed that you know he was a Muslim and that he's a Muslim terrorist. And all these crazy narratives, it's like anything to discredit him, anything to paint him as this thuggish Palestinian and it's it's really not fair. And you know who did almost the worst job of framing surrounding this? His own lawyers. This is what's really, really upsetting to me. In fact, um, after the Washington Post article ran, uh, one of the JFK conspiracy researchers, ha, 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 you know, probably working for the government, had contacted the reporter and said, well, Sirhan admitted his guilt. Didn't you see the David Frost interview? And there, there was an interview taped by David Frost of Sirhan, where Sirhan basically says, yes, I killed them, and blah, blah, blah. Sirhan has always taken credit for it because he didn't know otherwise. For decades, he believed he had shot Kennedy because he didn't see this evidence. He didn't know, and he literally had no memory. And if you have no memory of doing something, but everybody you know tells you, you know, you did it, you're going to believe that because you have no way not to believe that. And so Sirhan has reached for, he wants his life to be meaningful. And he said that. He's like, I'd rather die and say I did it for my country. You know, be painted as a crazy person, basically. And so Sirhan's reached for that and his lawyers want oh, this. Now that David Frost interview was entirely scripted, start to finish questions and answers by Sirhan's attorney, probably in connection with others. All right, but Sirhan said only what he was told to say. You know, he was asked to, you know, say this, and that comes directly from Munir, his brother. And so anybody who uses that as, like, proof of Sirhan's guilt doesn't know what they're talking about. Okay. Or does and doesn't want you to know what they're talking about. Well, uh, going back to Israel um, for a second, I think it's really important to point out the context of the time and the time when the Kennedy assassination happened and, and when this narrative was first creative about Sirhan, right? Um, so a right, year, a year to the day, right, a year to the day before the shooting had been the Six-Day War, where Israel and Egypt, you know, had gotten into a clash on the Sinai, if right. memory um, Well, uh, yeah. I'll uh, give a brief summary. So that war, Israel claimed that um, 
uh, it was a preemptive war on their part because they had received evidence that they were going to be attacked by Egypt and, and other Arab countries, um, which in decades later uh, was revealed to be false. It was actually a war of aggression on Israel's part. Um, so um, that war resulted in uh, what continues today is the military occupation of the West Bank um, and, 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 you know, of Palestine. Um, it's when they took the Golan Heights of Syria as well, which is also relevant um, to recent events of today. Um, but a little known event that happened in the Six Day War was the Israeli bombing of the USS Liberty, an American ship. Um, Israel knew right. at the time that it was an American ship. It was part of an Israeli military plan to force U.S. involvement in the war to Israel's favor. They wanted the U.S. to enter on Israel's side. Um, that didn't go as happened in the USS Liberty. If you think about it now, over the decades, has really been erased from the record. I mean, very few people know about it, um, considering the fact that it was it was a hostile action taken against American troops by Israel, um, which is which is significant. And also, you know, this whole thing about Kennedy wanting fighter jets to be sent to Israel. Um, a lot of people at the time um, that remembered the USS Liberty were opposed to that because of that attack that had been launched on American soldiers. But of course, after Kennedy's killed and he was killed for supporting this particular um you know, uh, policy on Israel receiving fighter jets. Um, I think, you know, I would say personally that this really marked a turning point for the left in the U.S. of starting to support that bipart, what is now a bipartisan, uh, you know, the extreme military aid the U.S. provides to Israel on, on an annual basis. I think we can sort of trace some of that back to this assassination. So I think it's interesting. Um, also, in your book, you talk about the CIA's presence in Lebanon, potentially being involved, the American embassy in Lebanon. A lot of people that were there the day of the shooting in this team you described uh, mentioned to people at the event that they had come from Beirut. Um, there was also a man who I believe you said like three weeks before the shooting had tried to be hired at the ambassador hotel. He had provided an, an, an Israeli passport. Uh, that same guy was seen talking to someone else on the team later on in what was uh, a witness described as a language that wasn't, I believe, Spanish or French. Um, or any European language, um, and obviously not English, um, and that the person who who had heard it described it as staccato, which um, compared, uh, you, you posit in your book that it could be Arabic, but I would actually argue that um, Arabic to me really sounds really fluid, you know, sort of like a flowing language. I would actually consider, you know, uh, uh, Hebrew to be more staccato sounding. It sounds similar to German or, or Russian, um, a lot of people say, sort of like a harsher language. And considering the passport that he had earlier, I think that's interesting. So, um, uh, could you talk a little bit about that uh, CIA Middle East connection there? Um. Yes. <laughs> yeah, the CIA was had been very involved in the Middle East since the fifties. You know, there there's many coups over there that are not talked about in the general media. And, and again, I'm not going to go into that now, just because I don't have my records, and I'll probably misstate something. Uh, but but the CIA had a, a station in Lebanon. In fact, David Atlee Phillips who many people think were was involved directly in some way in the John Kennedy assassination, had been stationed in Lebanon in the 50s when there were a number of coups over there in the Middle East. Um, they've always seen Israel as a strategic partner in the region, uh, partly because of its access to water. You know, when you're talking about shipping oil out of the Middle East, you got to get to a port. <laughs> and so the, the areas that border water are have always been of extreme interest. Also, one of the early reasons we supported Israel so strongly is there was a big belief that there was a lot of oil in Israel. And, you know, it, ironically, for years that turned out not to be true. And then in more more recent times, 
it seems there may be some oil there after all that's worth getting. But that was one of the original reasons for setting the Israeli state in that part of the world, is there was a belief that it was sitting on top of a gold mine of oil, which has not yet materialized. Uh, and, and then, of course, there's the religious component as well, although I feel historically religion always serves a different goal. You know, it's it's promoted as something for the masses, you know, to save their souls, but it's manipulated by governments to serve their political agendas. Um, yes, yeah, so uh, I wanted to talk briefly about the Liberty incident. The Liberty was an intelligent ship. It appeared to be, you know, NSA-related or whatever. And so it was not, again, not an accident. It was flying American flags. There was no question that it was an American ship. The Israelis claimed, oh, we didn't know it was American when we right. shot it down. That was the excuse. And Lyndon Johnson bought that because he felt it was important to support Israel in what was going on in the Middle East for the reasons, you know, we both talked about. Um, so that was significant. And, yes, the people involved... Um, there was a man, his name was John Corey. I've written about him in my past book and, of course, in this book as well. He, At one point, the police were getting so suspicious of his possible involvement because he literally worked at the hotel. He also had a Palestinian, or no, he was not a Palestinian. He was one from Beirut. Um, he had a Middle Eastern background is what I mean, but he had been very vocally anti-Kennedy and made no bones about it. And so the fact that he worked there and he made you know no bones about it Kind of made him a point, you know, a person of suspicion, especially when two of his classmates said they saw him shortly before midnight at the fountain in the lobby talking to mm. people. And interestingly enough, Suryan was seen at the fountain at the lobby at about that same time. There was a group of uh, five men and a, and a woman in a polka dot dress. One of the men was Suryan. One of the men was Michael Wayne, according to other witnesses. There's the girl in the polka dot dress. And then somebody else might have seen this man, John Corey, as part of that same group. And and the police, you know, investigated what Curry said. Curry lied to them initially. Curry lied to the FBI, claimed he'd gone straight home earlier that night, uh, which was provably not true. He then later came back because the police went to him and said, dude, you're starting to look guilty. You're going to need a better alibi. It's basically what they said to him. And so, so then he comes back with this story. Oh, well, I was actually moonlighting as a security guard at this film, at this firm Globe Security uh, over at the RCA building. And, and, uh, but when you look into that really carefully, it sounds like he signed off of his shift at 11 because no one would have witnessed him after that. And then the supervisor who signed his time card was literally a friend of his, a good friend of his. And, you know, in fact, when, asked, you know, to contact him if memory serves. And again, I'd have to check my book for this. He might have given the guy's personal number. Now, I could be confusing that with another story because there are two similar stories in that regard. But in any case, it was very clear that they were friends and that his friend was likely covering for him. Also, the day the LAPD is like kind of closing in on Corey is the day that one of the top LAPD members of what they had, the unit they had formed to investigate the case called Special Unit Senator that same day, one of them met with somebody from the CIA. They call it Goliath in their records, but I knew from other sources that Goliath is the, the code word that police use when they're talking about CIA. And think about the implications of that. <laughs> Goliath. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Someone, someone but, not to uh, mess with, um, I guess, right? Exactly, exactly. And, uh, so that, after that conversation where I guess they sought some background on Curry, suddenly Curry is no longer a person of interest. 
in the investigation. So I found that kind of incredible. And Curry that night claims that after his shift, he went to pick up his wife who was inbound on a flight from Beirut. And there was an incident earlier where Curry had either borrowed or stolen a car. The people who had the car said he stole it. He claimed he borrowed it, you know, and that he'd been paying them and whatever. But I thought it was so interesting that here he is, a guy from Beirut in America. But it was not the Beirut embassy in America that called the police to vouch for him. It was the American embassy in Beirut that called to vouch for him. And the American embassies worldwide are often, you know, housing CIA people. It's, you know, kind of an open secret that a lot of the CIA agents abroad work out of uh, embassies or annexes next to embassies in the countries, sure. you know, where they operate. That's yeah. that's not a secret. <laughs> not a secret to anybody who reads any history anyway. Uh, so I thought it was really interesting, again, that here, here this Beirut citizen is being vouched for by the American embassy in Beirut. So there you go. Not the Lebanese embassy in the U.S. That is kind of exactly. Well, exactly. um, Going back to the CIA connection here, um, you mentioned in your book a couple of times uh, James Angleton, who is the CIA counterintelligence chief, and how he and his personal safe head photos that he just kept for some unknown reason of RFK's autopsy. Well, I was just going to say there's this L.A. Times article from from the late 80s that talks about Angleton. Um, If I can read from it a little bit, it says the CIA's working relationship with Israeli intelligence is one of the agency's oldest and closest rivaled only by its ties to British uh, secret intelligence service. For decades, the, quote, Israeli account was part of the secret, secret kingdom ruled by James Angleton. Um, it has sometimes been said that Angleton got the job as the result of a close working relationship he had developed just after World War II. Um, with Zionists in Europe. Um, it says Angleton formed other ties with the new state of Israel after its founding in 1948 and then goes on to talk about how he, in 1951, formally asked the director of the CIA to establish a formal liaison with his, Israel's uh, intelligence service, the Mossad. So I think that's kind of an interesting um, connection that it somewhat w- w- was discussed recently. I don't know if you have anything you'd like to add to that. Yes, well, and of course, uh, Israel put up a statue to Angleton, which makes you wonder what was it that really? he did for them. I didn't know, <laughs> know that. Yes, wow. yes. There's so much to be mined in that vein, I believe. But, uh, and it's interesting that Angleton was also, again, so involved in the Lee Harvey Oswald story. Right. It was Angleton's group really? that first opened files on Oswald, and not in his general 200-person counterintelligence unit, but in his tiny, super-secret black ops part of counterintelligence, which was called CI-SIG, the Special Investigations Group, which had his hand-picked associates of the most closed-mouthed associates, and that's where Oswald file was originally stored in the CIA. And Angleton is very involved in the cover-up. Angleton's deputy, Ray Rocca, was was the contact with the Warren Commission, and of course, Alan Dulles, and um, I think it was uh, Angleton who carried Alan Dulles's ashes after he died. <laughs> I mean, they were super close. Wow. Okay. Yeah, and so it's like if I had to pick two high-level people in the CIA who were likely also involved in the plot, I would absolutely name Angleton and Dulles for so many reasons. And it's one of my regrets that, again, I just couldn't make the book any longer. But I could have written a whole other chapter on Angleton's relationship with Israel and the likely significance that had in this right. plot because Angleton was also involved in mind control. 
and he was on the, you know, there are very few records, but it's clear that the hypnosis Anglican programs of the had, CIA, right? That you think Sirhan exactly. might have been. Yeah, okay. Exactly. And everybody's heard of MK Ultra, but MK Ultra was an umbrella program for a lot of smaller operations, some of which even include, included biological warfare, which right. is not mind control. It's just, you know, or, or atomic testing. It was a huge umbrella for a lot of programs. But there were earlier programs called Artichoke and Bluebird and, the artichoke one kind of has the template for this program in the sense that there's a document that says, you know, what if we could get a person of blanked out foreign descent to commit an act of attempted assassination as part of a larger operation? And then the person could be killed while being captured. And that's almost kind of what happened here. It's There's a whole sideline weird story of Sirhan attempting to buy a horse, like in the two days before the assassination. Monday, this preacher, really? wow. yeah, Monday afternoon, there's this preacher, Jerry Owen, who has all these right-wing and CIA connections himself, uh, claims he picked up a hitchhiking Sirhan, who was with a girl and a guy in a gold top, <laughs> and, and that Sirhan wanted to buy a horse, and that it was to be delivered to the Ambassador Hotel, can you imagine, all right, why would you deliver a horse to the Ambassador Hotel if you're buying a horse? There are no stables at the Ambassador right. Hotel. It it's seems right in the middle of the city. There's right. literally no good reason for that. And the thing was, I think that this was a backup plan, and I, I don't go into this in too much detail in my book, again, mostly for space, but to me, I think that was the backup plan, that if by some reason Sirhan somehow managed to escape, he wanted to get him on horseback because it would be really easy to shoot him escaping from the crime. And, and that's like a whole side story. Also, um, it does appear that while the girl appeared to be his handler that night, yeah, Jerry Owen may well have been his what they call an intelligence babysitter. Somebody just keeping an eye on him. Sran spent a lot of time out in Corona at horse farms long after he'd lost his job working with horses because he was an exercise boy at one point. Uh, you know, he started as a groom and then was trying to be a jockey and trying to work his way up. And they let him be an exercise boy on a horse. And then he had a terrible accident. And that appears to be when his hypnosis may have started. Right. You noted and that in your as, book that as, he disappeared to what appeared to be a Navy military intelligence facility for like two yeah. weeks. And his family didn't hear from him for like two weeks after a minor fall. He didn't have broken bones or anything. And then he had all these strange doctor visits. Could you go uh, into that for... First yes, really exactly. So, right. So he's riding a horse, and it's foggy that morning, and he falls off and gets trampled. And this is sadly a somewhat common occurrence. Goes to the doctor. The doctor, you know, says later there weren't any serious injuries, but there was some internal bruising, and you know, so he needs some stitches around the eye. But it was mostly surface level stuff, and you know, nothing that would cause brain damage. They scanned him for brain damage. You know, that's, there's never been any brain damage. Nothing serious, but yes. And his family's like, we didn't see him for two weeks. And that's odd in itself. And then what's really odd to me is I'm reading about how minor his injuries are, and then right after that, I'm reading how he went to the doctor once or twice a month for the next 13 months. And I'm like, hmm. I don't even go to the doctor. And I, I have actual you know, like medical issues still that happen for me to time to time. You know, it's like, wow, that's what the hell is he going to the doctor all that all those times for? And I was also super curious because not only was Sirhan spending a lot of time at Corona when he didn't have a job there, but 
literally in the days before the assassination, I'm like, what is in Corona? What could possibly be drawing him to Corona? So I drove out there. It's, you know, about 45-minute drive from where I live. And as I was getting out there on the map, I'm like, what is this huge naval facility doing in the middle of this totally landlocked area? It's huge. It's it's literally a huge naval weapons, naval surface weapons center. And there is kind of a lake that's somewhat hidden. And I thought, well, you know, I guess if you're testing, you know, weapons, this is as good a place as any. Although I always thought the Navy would operate like in the ocean. It didn't occur to me they would operate in the lake in the middle of a totally landlocked area. But if you're hiding it, you know, in the days before drones and aerial surveillance, I guess that would make sense. But it's it was also interesting to me because the Navy was a real partner to the CIA and the mind control operations. They had their own program, the CIA had their own program, and then there were joint programs. In fact, the earliest one, Bluebird, I think was a joint program. And again, I'd have to go back and, and check. And there, there's an excellent book by Walter Bower called Operation Mind Control. And my only complaint is that it's not as well sourced as I would like it to be, but it was the stuff that was sourced that I was able to trace from there. And I got this incredible article from the London Times about this officer of the Navy who talked, you know, it sounded like he talked openly about mind control in front of a large group of people. As I dug into it, it was a little different than that. He he talked about it at the conference, but then a journalist followed up with him privately in his room and got a lot of details about how, uh, you know, the Navy would find these people in prisons or on drugs and would then, you know, train them under hypnosis to be assassins and then station them in embassies around the world so they'd be available as needed. Oh I mean, it's just incredible. And again, these are not things you're ever going to read in the mainstream media because it is controlled by the very people running these types of operations, and they don't want you to know about this. It's not a secret from our enemies. I am not exposing anything our enemies don't already know. What I am exposing in the book is things the American people don't know that we really need to know. How can we claim to be a democracy if we don't take ownership of the things that are done with our tax dollars? And sure. You know, if we're funding the, the programming of criminals and drug addicts and turning them into assassins for our use, I find that highly disturbing. And, and I think, I think most people... Americans find that highly disturbing. <laughs> I'm just going to assume that. Hopefully and, I'm and I actually, correct. I want to give credit. There, there were people even in the CIA who found this highly disturbing, but they were overruled by the people who didn't find it highly okay. disturbing. Huh. So there you go. Wow. Well, really quick to, well, to bring this sort of, oh, sorry, uh, to bring this, uh, you know, to the present a little bit, um, there's sort of an interesting Kamala Harris connection here, right? Um, Kamala Harris, we know, is running yes. for president. Um, we're a little short on time, but if you could briefly talk about um, how she, who she chose to review Sirhan's case, the possibility for a retrial, who he is, uh, and and why that's troubling, Um just, just really briefly, and then we'll we'll ask our last question and, and wrap up if that's all right. Right. So people are like, how could Kamala Harris be involved in the Sirhan case? You know, weren't they like fifty years apart? Well, his most recent legal appeal went through the California State Attorney General's office when Kamala Harris was the State Attorney General. And I was, at that point, you know, Lori Dusick, one of the lawyers, had reached out to me and said, of any evidence that could help us, you know, or whatever, let me know. And 
I honestly, I stayed away from Sir Hans Lawyers and Sir Hans family until I was convinced of his innocence. Then I reached out to help because I wanted to be objective at first. Like maybe he did it. You know, maybe, you know, the stories are all true. I really looked into it. But once I realized that Sir Hans, in my opinion, had truly been framed and that the evidence clearly showed that he had not killed Kennedy, that's when I, you know, said, if I could be of any help, you let me know. And so she did. She sent me this writ that they were writing and I, you know, sent them corrections. I remember I was literally sick in bed at the time and I'm like feverishly trying to answer questions. <laughs> I'm like, this may not make any sense. It's not my usual good writing. But anyway, I, I helped them with their response. And then I read the response that Kamala's Harris's office had produced. And I learned that it was Mel Eiton, and we were talking about his book earlier, The Forgotten Terrorist. Mel Eiton is the guy who claimed that Sirhan was the first Arab terrorist. And again, to, in my mind, that makes Aiden either an intelligence asset himself or what they call a useful idiot, <laughs> somebody who falls for the CIA's line because they carefully seeded the record with everything that he pulled out. And it's like he pulled out exactly the narrative the CIA hoped he would find. So either he is their useful idiot or he's, you know, working on their behalf, in my opinion. Uh so anyway, he's the one who wrote the rebuttal then to Sir Hans Laura's piece. And I was shocked when I read it. And I don't know, by the way, I don't know if Mel Eaton wrote all of it or if he advised it. I, I don't want to it. Claim I think that's what's significant. His name's on it. Because he's the yes. one that, and, and that what, made this narrative really, he, he's promoted it probably arguably more than anyone. Um, Kamala yeah, Harris and he's of part all of people it. chose him. Right. And it's interesting, you know, that Kamala Harris has ties to APAC. She's tried to sort of hide that during her presidential right. campaign and, and has only given speeches that are off the record, but she's given speeches in public right. before. Uh, she talked about uh, how uh, in one off the record thing that was sort of leaked that, you know, when she was a kid, she used to try and raise money for the Jewish National uh, Fund and, and stuff like this and is super pro-Israel and, and things like that. So it's interesting that she would choose um, yeah. this guy exactly. of all people. Somebody who put this line forward. And it, it to me, obviously, it sounds like CIA backs Kamala Harris. You know, she's the one getting all the positive press from CNN, CIA, and as I sometimes <laughs> call it. <laughs> uh, but, but what I want to stress, too, is it was not even just the point of view in the writ of the rebuttal. It was the juvenility of it. I mean, it was like written, it, it came across as if it was written by an angry sixth grader. And that she would sign something that had such a petulant tone to it spoke in my mind to her emotional immaturity. But again, even if she didn't write it, the fact that she put her name on that was incredibly disturbing because we already know what emotional immaturity in the White House looks like. And I don't ever want to see that again. You know what I mean? Right. <laughs> you know, I, I would like somebody with a little emotional intelligence. And wow, that writ did not have it. Not only were the facts wrong, but the tone of it was so juvenile. It was just like, how could a lawyer even agree with any of this? Just on the face of it, it was so poorly written. Yeah, I mean, we're up to the present day. And I suppose that's a good segue into my last question, because obviously the Kennedy assassination happened 50 years ago now. And it's so long that for a lot of people, they don't know about it. They don't think it holds any relevance. But you clearly seem to think that it's crucial to understanding the world as it currently is, doesn't it? Absolutely, absolutely, because we've been told a false history for 50 years, 
And, you know, imagine diagnosing a patient with a false medical record for 50 years, and you're constantly treating the patient for diabetes when they have cancer. It's like they're never getting well because you keep giving them the wrong treatment. And that's what false history has done to this country. We can't fix what's wrong if we can't see the actual problem. And the problem is there really is this deep state. I kind of hate to use that word, but it's as apt as any. It's funny. Every country has their own way of calling it. Like the Brazilians call it the parallel government, which I thought was an interesting way. You know, because this happens in every country. There's the official government. And then there's the real government. And Americans are very naive. And it's a very troubling uh, realization. It's a very discomforting realization to come to that the people we vote for and elect is a little bit of a sham and that they aren't truly in control. And the thing is, they could be in control if they had the courage because they have the people behind them. And so that's kind of my argument is, one, we're making the wrong diagnoses about our country because we have this false history. So we need to correct the history so we can get a correct diagnosis of what's really troubling us to move forward. And two, when we stand together, we really can move mountains. This is not at all hopeless to me. And I feel that by adding all this information into the public record, I can help further that agenda of bringing us back to our true history so that we can seize the bull by the horns, take control of this secret government. It's And it's as simple as cutting their funding. If you can cut the funding of the CIA, the NSA, the Pentagon, you know, all these agencies that push us into these wars for resources, you know, and that hide behind the guise of these political things, if they can't pay off all these journalists, if they can't pay off all these people, you know, in government, sooner or later, if we cut the funding back enough, <laughs> There won't be any incentive to do the wrong thing. We actually have the power to take this back. And in my mind, one of the best ways of bringing this to the surface is to get Sirhan out of jail because that would be such a huge news story. It would open people's eyes to this 50 years of false history. So I really can't think of anything more important than getting him out of jail as a strong statement that we are reclaiming our power as, as citizens of this country. And, and restoring justice to this country. Well, I think another movement that would be really interested in seeing Sirhan Sirhan's case revisited would be the Boycott, Divest, and Sanctions Movement, or BDS Movement, in solidarity with Palestine. Because as we mentioned earlier, right, uh, Sirhan Sirhan has been labeled the first Palestinian terrorist, and that narrative is still used today by Israel's government it's to claim fault. that that all people in Palestine are terrorists or connected to terrorists. We saw this recently um with the 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 most recent minister of defense in Israel, uh, Lieberman, he said, "Oh, there's no innocent people in Gaza. They're all connected to terrorists. They're all terrorists, right?" You you could really argue that this sort of oh idea planted in the American consciousness goes back to Sirhan Sirhan, and as we've you know talked about today, I mean that's a false narrative, uh, most likely CIA promoted, probably in connection with Mossad. So I think it would be really, I think it's really imperative considering the success, uh, the grassroots success of BDS, that that people in that movement pay attention to this case, um, because I think it it would have really significant implications, not just for Palestinian solidarity, but, you know, to make, um, you know, to really show what's going on behind the scenes and how, you know, certain people, um, certain groups of people, Palestinians and other groups around the world are, are, you know, victims of of these sort of narratives and and they don't deserve to be. Yeah, it's funny. I actually met a Palestinian when I was on the ferry to see the Statue of Liberty in New York City. And I remember my first thought was, oh, I hope he's not a terrorist. And then I had to check myself. I'm like, 
where did that thought come from? And, mm. you know, at least I did check myself. Yeah. But it's like it's been implanted in our minds. Yeah. And even I, who feel like I'm pretty aware of that, and, and then I check myself and laugh. And he, he said to me, he said, I bet you think I'm a terrorist, right? No, it's so sad. After 9-11, and, and he you know, was so uh... sweet and so joking about it. But it's it's terrible that we have these knee-jerk reactions. Yeah. Mind control works. And in, in my book, I actually talk about not just individual mind control, but mass mind control, and that we've all been victims of so much propaganda. So, yes, I agree. And, and BDS, again, it goes to the same thing. Cut the money and the evil ends. You know, if, and that's what Dr. King, you know, was stressing in his Poor People's Campaign. He was asking for huge boycotts against corporations that discriminated against people. It is bottom line. Money is the only vote we have. All right. You know, that really works. It's yeah, we have votes and I am never going to be one to discourage voting. And I've written about the dangers of electronic voting and how easily our vote is stolen and manipulated. But I think it is important to vote. But I think it's even more important to vote with your dollars because money changes the world for better or for worse. Sure. Well, I think we are pretty much out of time. I'd like to thank you, Lisa, for being on our show today. Um, is there any way people can follow you on social media or learn more about your work? Yes. Uh, I have a Twitter account. At, uh, it's just at Lisa Pease. So please follow me there. Uh, I have a Facebook page where I, I post publicly. Uh, I don't friend people I don't know, so don't send me friend requests. If I don't know you well offline, I'm not going to friend you online. Okay, but I do post publicly. And, of course, please do buy my book and please read the whole thing. You know, I, there's nothing more distressing to an author to like, oh, yeah, I, I jumped right to this chapter. I skimmed it because I carefully build a narrative and a story. It's like, <laughs> please read the whole thing. Well, and there's much. It's not just about the Robert Kennedy case. There's so much other history built into there. Well, as someone that read Lisa's book, I highly recommend buying it because you would think, a, you know, a 500-page super documented investigation would be dry to read. This is not uh, – it's really – it reads like a novel. It's very, very compelling um, and just so full of information, tons of footnotes, tons of good information. So please, um, if you are interested in this information, please consider buying Lisa's book. Thank you so much. And thanks for coming on the program. So with that, uh, for Alan and I, this is the conclusion of our first video interview. Thank you so much, Lisa, for joining us. And uh, we'll see you all next week. Thank you. See ya. Bye-bye.